0: Alright, let's turn to John chapter number 9. We're going to uh, read and work through the rest of this chapter here in a moment, but before we do that, uh, we're going to pray. We're going to have a song, and I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Uh, Today is a special day. Every Sunday is a special day, I think, but I'd love for you to pray with me this morning, uh, specifically for the launch of Maluhaya Baptist Church. You say, what is Maluhaya Baptist Church? Uh, That is a church in Hawaii on the island of Oahu uh, that we are kind of strategically partnered with that is launching today. Uh, Many of you would know Travis and Sarah Medeiros, uh, Sarah grew up here at our her church, Mary Travis, who grew up on the island of Oahu, is, is a, a Hawaiian boy, and uh, they have been kind of planning and aiming towards launching a church. For the past couple years, uh, they have made Harvest kind of their home base as they were here, uh, getting their finances and things in order. So they've been around a lot. And uh, today is the day that the church will start. Uh, Pastor Smith from our staff and uh, Kathy, his wife, they have been over there with them since Monday, suffering for Jesus in Hawaii. And uh, and they've been texting us kind of what they're doing, just really getting the word out, doing a lot of preparing, a lot of planning. I saw Sarah's mom this morning and, and Charlene said they've been working on like dogs and and they've been just going to town so that's happening here in a few hours and uh and i'd love for us all just to pray together that's an exciting thing that there's going to be a new church there on the island of oahu about If you know Honolulu, uh, it's about 25 minutes from Honolulu. It's its its own kind of uh, city. I forget the name of the city uh, that that they're in, uh, about 25 minutes away. But we're excited about that and uh, and really have been kind of strategic in that financially, logistically, prayerfully, uh, trying to help them. So would you pray with me? Uh, Well, let me recap verses 1 through 12 that we read and talked about last week. And then we're going to cover verses 13 all the way through 41 today. Uh, We're going to just walk through the text for the majority of the sermon, kind of a different sermon, uh, but we'll walk through this piece by piece by piece, verse by verse, and then we'll apply it uh, quickly but pointedly at the very end. So verses 1 through 12 is that Jesus is walking by, and there's a blind man there, and the disciples say, Jesus, why is that dude blind? They ask the big why. And And they have this presupposition that it's because of somebody's sin, and they say, was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? Should he feel guilty because of what he did or should he feel angry because of what his parents did? Whose is it? And Jesus says, neither. He says, that's so that the works of God may be made manifest in him. This is going to serve as a display case for the glory and the work of God. And he goes on to say that I'm the light of the world right before he lets light enter this man's eyes. And then he takes mud, he kind of spits, makes mud, puts on the guy's eyes and then sends him packing. Says, go find the pool of Siloam and wash, which was a ways away from where they were. He sends him to wander around in the dark until he can be healed. And the man's obedience exhibits his faith and he goes to the pool of Siloam, he washes, he's healed. And then people start to notice that this blind guy is is seeing now and some people say look blind guy got sight other people say no no he just looks like him but you find at the end of verse 12 that he says it's me i was blind but now i see and it's at this moment where you think that okay i i know what's going to happen here we're gonna we're gonna have a party get the cake blow some kazoos somebody whack a pinata right make some pierogies let's have fun like this is awesome this dude just got healed But verse 13 tells us, they brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind. So if you know anything about the Pharisees, you know they're not in the uh, pinata-whacking, kazoo-blowing business. Like, they're pretty uptight, and they're not going to think that this is thrilling. And here's what they say. It was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So this is going to set the stage for a similar conflict to John chapter 5. John 5, Jesus healed a man who was lame, said, get your bed, walk, and, and they had a problem with this, not because he healed him, but because he healed him on the Sabbath day, and they told Jesus, look, Sabbath day, no work, that's what it means, and you just worked, you just healed the guy, and Jesus said, yeah, so what? My father, he doesn't take a day off, he, he works around the clock, and like father, like son, so do I, and they said, you're making yourself equal to God, he said, yeah, I sure am, so they're already real frustrated at Jesus kind of continuously healing on the Sabbath day. He's going to do this again, and they're going to have a problem with this again. Verse number 15. And then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. <clears throat> so the neighbors had asked him. Now they asked him. And he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, I washed and do see. Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that's a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. So here they here they come, you know, it seems like the IRS or something, wanted to audit Jesus, everything he does, with a little clipboards, what happened, tell us, what was it, you know. It was on a Sabbath day, that's a violation. So they they come to him, and he's, how did this happen? Well, he put mud on my eyes, told me to wash, I washed, he's, I see now. And there, it says, the text says, there's group A that says, can't do that, that's against God, he's wicked. Group B says, how could he possibly do this except he's from God? So there's this division among them. Group B is going to fade and group A is going to take the prominent place in this story moving forward. They said to the blind man, well, what sayest thou of him that he has opened thine eyes? So who do you say he is? Like he's the theologian in residence now or something. He said he's a prophet. Probably the highest honor he could have thought of He's in line with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea. He's in line with the prophets of old. It's not a true confession that Jesus Christ is Savior of the world or he's the Messiah. But it is an audacious statement. It's clearly saying that he's from God. And it's in line with what Jesus kind of asked his disciples in Matthew 16, Caesarea Philippi, that Jesus had asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And well, some people say that you're a prophet, that you're Isaiah, that you're Jeremiah, that you're one of them. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, Jesus, we say that you're the Christ, the son of the living God, right? And Jesus says, blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, flesh and blood hath not revealed that unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven. So Jesus knows that saying a prophet is not enough. There's more than that to be a true follower of Jesus and to claim him as Lord. But this man's faith is budding. It's, it's, it's starting to grow a little bit. And he says, I, I think he's a prophet. Verse 18, but the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight. Now that's halfway through the sentence there, but let's just stop there because that's crazy. So the Jews don't believe that he was a blind guy who received his sight. So this is kind of colossal stupidity here. The only thing that they can think of to explain the situation is is you were faking it. You weren't really blind. He put mud on your eyes. He did this stuff, But, but you were faking it. Because the implications of this healing is going to blow the lid off their entire theological framework. And they're going to have to recognize that Jesus is from God. And he's not a madman. He's not crazy. He doesn't have a devil. But he's actually doing this. And this is right. But his healing would refute their presupposition that Jesus is not a good guy and they shouldn't like him. So what they come up with is, well, maybe he just, you know, faked it his whole life which is is so illogical and impractical, it would be impractical for anybody, but especially in this day and age, that when you were a blind person or you were a lame person or you had leprosy, you were so ostracized from the society at large that it was insane. There was this idea, kind of a twofold idea, that If you were unclean or impure had these sorts of things, then you wouldn't be allowed into temple worship because we want only the pure animals. We want only the pure sacrifices and you can't be allowed in. But that was compounded by the effect that they thought if this happened to you, it was because of somebody's sin, right? And the disciples expressed that early in the chapter. The only reason you would be blind, dude, is because God is mad at you and you're under the judgment of God. So why would we want to associate ourselves with people who are under the wrath and the judgment of God? So you were, you were literally banned from temple worship. You were kicked out and you became a beggar who sat on the side of the road as people went into the temple trying to, trying to get some sort of money to live. And that's how this guy lived this whole life. So why in the world would he fake this? I mean, this is just so outlandish that they're, they're grasping for straws. On how to explain this. And it says that they think this until they called the parents of him that received sight. So, desperately looking for a chance to, to shoot holes in this guy's story, they decide to inca- interrogate his parents. So they ask the parents, saying, verse 19, Is this your son who ye say was born blind? How then doth he now see? So, three questions Is he your son? Was he born blind? If both of those are true, then how does he now see? Now, they're prepared to answer two of those questions, but not three. They know the answer to all three, and they're going to lie. But they're only going to answer two, and John will tell us why here in just a moment. His parents answered and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself." Yeah, he's our son, he was blind, but I, don't ask me about the rest of it. I don't have the foggiest. I mean, I mean he's, a, he's an adult, go talk to him. Don't ask us, we don't want to weigh in on that. Verse 22, these words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he, Jesus, was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, said his parents, he is of age, ask him. So they're trying to pass the buck. They don't want to deal with the pressure that's coming from the religious leaders. And they know that there's there's a motivating fear here, a fear of excommunication from the synagogue and from the worship. So they know that attesting that Jesus had done this miracle would be to tacitly admit that Jesus was the Messiah. Because there was uh, one miracle that was really reserved for the Messiah that the Old Testament prophets had prophesied about, and that was the healing of the blind. The man will tell us here in a few moments, the blind man, that had never been in the history of the world that a blind man had been healed this way. And if you read the Old Testament, you find that's true. There's a lot of miracles in there, a lot lot of fascinating miracles, but you never see a blind person healed. And Isaiah had prophesied that that was going to be one of the signs of the Messiah, that he would heal blind people. Jesus actually, more or less, launched his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth by coming to Nazareth, going to the synagogue, picking up the scroll, and reading from Isaiah these words, The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of the sight to the blind. But Jesus knew this was part of of the Christ. The Messiah was giving sight to people physically and spiritually, and they know this. And they know to say that Jesus had done this would be to put it in the category of where we're claiming that he's the Messiah. And this is going to mean that we're ostracized and that we're outcast and they're fearful and they won't do it. And they say, just, just talk to our son. So verse 24, again, called they the, the man that was blind and said, give God praise. We know that this man is a sinner. So it seems kind of weird. Give God praise. Jesus is a sinner. The give God praise part can throw you. It was kind of a, a colloquialism of that day that basically meant tell the truth. The God, they would say, received gl- glory and honor and praise if you would be truthful about something. So they would oftentimes use that as tell the truth. You can see this in the case of Achan, even all the way back in the Old Testament. The Achan who had stolen and, and who had kind of embezzled more or less and hid it under his tent. that Joshua finally finds out about it and he comes to Achan and he says, give glory to God. And what he says to Achan when he says give glory to God is tell the truth. Own it. What's happening here? So when they come to this man, they're basically coming back to him for round two, and they're telling him, we've come to the conclusion that he's a sinner, not a prophet, so tell the truth about this. Verse 25. The blind man entered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. I don't know nothing about this sin and stuff. All I know is I see your ugly mugs now. That's that's all I can say. I used to be blind. Now I see. That's all that I can attest to. I don't know about the rest of this. And this is a really important point in the text because this starts to get at the heart of what this whole chapter is going to be about and how Jesus will end this chapter is that all of this blindness and all of this scene, as mentioned 26 times in this chapter, is meant to point beyond the physical blindness to be a springboard into the spiritual blindness that these people have, that they... As you go through the passage, the blind man sees clearer and clearer, spiritually speaking, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he should put his faith in him. And the religious leaders are continually blinded, like progressively just put the blinders on deeper and deeper so that they they won't see this and they won't attest to this. And this really is is kind of a watershed in in this text. Verse 26, Then said they to him again, Well, what did he do to thee? How opened he thine eyes? And he answered them, I told you already, and you did not hear. Wherefore, would you hear it again? Will he also be his disciples? Tell him, what did he do to you? What's all this hocus pocus stuff? I already told you. Are your ears plugged? You want me to tell you again? You put it on repeat? Same song, second verse, guys. You want to be his disciples? Which is, there's a little bit of sass here. A little bit of courage here of this man speaking up. They said unto him and reviled him, verse 28. Thou art his disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know that God spake unto Moses, but as for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. Look, he can be his disciple, but we're followers of Moses. And we know that Moses is from God. We don't know about this guy, where he's from. But Jesus had already told them, if you believed in Moses, you would have believed in me because Moses testified of me, right? Moses wrote about me. So you can't really be a follower of Moses and not a follower of Jesus. But the man answered and said with sarcasm with great boldness, herein is a marvelous thing that ye know not from whence he is, and yet he had opened my eyes. This is unbelievable. Who's blind now, guys? You can't see the truth. He opened my eyes. Verse 31 We know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, it was not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. Guys, there's no way he could have done this without God. Verse 33, if this man were not of God, he could do nothing. You You all should be able to figure this out. Like Connecting the dots isn't this difficult. You don't have to be an Aristotelian. Like It doesn't take that much logic to figure out that he's clearly from God. There's no way he could heal me without this. And you find that this man's newfound physical sight is joining forces rapidly with this spiritual sight that he's beginning to see who jesus he's a prophet he's from god he's he's becoming clear and the unbelief of these religious leaders is remarkable to him like he, he can't figure out how this is happening verse 34 they answered and said unto him thou wast altogether born in sins and dost thou teach us and they cast him out what a shame they go back to, you wouldn't have been blind if it weren't for your sin. So how wicked are you? You're going to teach us? You're going to tell us something? And they excommunicate him and they cast him out, which he'd been in for about two minutes. He was excommunicated previously. Probably was weirdly a favor, you know, like, you can't be in our group, promise? <laughs> like, can you sign that over to me? Like, this, that's okay. Verse 35 shifts. And now here are these religious leaders gone and Jesus is going to go find this man who they've just thrown out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and when he had found him, which is awesome that he goes and finds him, right? Here are these people casting him out of the temple, but the Lord of the temple goes and he finds him, hunts him down, seeks him. He says, dost thou believe on the Son of God? So Jesus comes and finds him. Do you believe on the Son of God? And the man has a fair question. He says, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Who's that? Right? If you have a question, take it to Jesus. Take it to the Bible. The Bible's not scared of your questions. Jesus isn't scared of your questions. That's fair. Jesus said to him, thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, this is a, ah, what an awesome confession. So short, but so potent. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So there's any doubt that this man is a believer. It's gone now. Who's, who's the son of God? It's me, Jesus. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. What an excellent way to describe what following Jesus looks like. The belief in Jesus, a declaration that he is Lord, that he is in control, that he gets to govern, that he gets to rule, and then you worship Jesus. That's what it's all about. Verse 39, this is really, 39, 40, and 41 is what this whole story was meant to teach, The big point of this whole passage is now going to come crashing down on these three verses. A little bit cryptic, but we'll understand it. Jesus said, for judgment, I'm coming to this world that they which see not might see. And that they which see might be made blind. So let me just take a time out for a second. There are some people that say that, you know, Jesus was the most tolerant person to ever live. There was no microaggression. He never offended anybody. He was always a safe space. That he was, he was just constantly kind and pleasant and easygoing and sweet and affable, and, and everybody loved him, and he never said anything that was hard. Just read verse 39 and tell me if you think that's true, okay? That's not true. Jesus steps up when he says, I have come to earth so that those that think they have spiritual insight, those that think they have it all figured out may be shown to be blind. And those that come to me, supposing that they don't have spiritual insight, they're going to see and I'm going to give them something. And his whole argument is going to center around a person's sense of need. That the people who come and say, I'm blind, I have a need, uh, help me, that they'll be healed and they'll receive their sight. But the people who come saying, I don't have any need, I'm not blind, I see perfectly, that they are actually going to be blind. And Jesus is saying here that if you feel no need, you won't be healed. But if you feel a need, then I have healing for you. He's saying very clearly that I am the divide, and the humble and the lost will see God's light, while the proud and the arrogant and the self righteous are going to be blinded to it. And this should not surprise us. This is exactly what Simeon, at the, at the birth of Jesus, prophesied. And he said that this child, Jesus, is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel that he's going to be the divide, that some people are going to rise and they're, they're going to find their footing because of him and some people are going to fall down because of him, but it's one of those two. So the Pharisees in verse 40, when they hear these words, said unto him, Are we blind also? you talking about us? Are we the blind people? Jesus says in verse 41, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see. Therefore your sin is remaineth. What's Jesus saying? If you could only admit your blindness, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. I would forgive it. I would take care of it. But because you claim your own self-righteousness, your guilt remains. Your sin remains. I, I have no solution for you. So all of this is about spiritual sight. All of this is working to this point where whether one sees clearly or not that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, that we should believe that he is Lord, and that we should worship him or not. Now that, honestly, is kind of the bulk of my sermon, just walking through this text and getting the feel of it. Let me apply it in two brief but pointed ways. First of all, and this, by the way, is not these aren't the only implications, but these are two big ones. Number one, swallow your fear and share Jesus. So a big part of this text, right in the middle of it, is the contrast of these parents who for fear of the Jews will not speak up, will not say that Jesus healed, will not say that Jesus worked this miracle and they they button up versus the man who with courage and with wind in his sails steps up to the plate and says, Jesus did this. I think he's a prophet. I think he's a God. I don't know everything. I don't know the answer to that question, but I can tell you what he did for me and steps up with boldness. And these religious leaders are trying to batten down the hatches on these people and get them to do what they want them to do, get them to say what they want them to say, kick them out of the synagogue, which would have been Far worse than being kicked out of the Baptist Church or the Catholic Church or something like that. In this day and age, the financial and the social ramifications of being ostracized or kicked out of temple worship or the synagogue were vast. You lost all your status. You lost almost all of your connections. The religious leaders now said that you were, you know, condemned for hell and that you wouldn't see God. That this was, this was big stuff. And, and you can almost see why these parents would fear, but fearing these people who, by the way, already beat them up, so just think for a moment, there's, there's this blind guy who is begging by the wayside. I, I would have to think that if our fourthborn who's due here in like three weeks, so any day now we're going to have a baby. If he's born blind, I can guarantee you he's not going to be on the side of the road begging as an adult, right? Because he's my son. He's, we're going to receive him. We're going to care for him. We're going to love him, right? You don't find that in this case. Why? Because the, the prevailing thought was this was somebody's sin, either parents, your sin, so we should shun you and we should be mad at you, or his sin, so we should shun him and be mad at him. And I can't say with certainty, but with all probability, there was a lot of pressure on these parents previously to shun their own child, to, to stiff arm him to the side, and to not welcome him in and to make him a beggar and an outcast. So these these parents that have already more or less been beat up by the religious elites of the day now are being beat up again and they're falling into this trap of the fear of man and aren't speaking what they know to be the truth, which we know to be a trap. Proverbs tells us very clearly that the fear of man brings a snare. But whoso trusts in the Lord shall be safe, right? One preacher said it this way, fear is this dark room where negatives are developed. Then nothing good becomes of that trying to win everybody's approval, trying to do what they want, trying to appease them all the time. And you have to know that this is important for this reason. Sometimes people that come into faith with Jesus don't understand this. No one explains it to them. And if this happened to you, I apologize, but it's the truth. When you become a follower of Jesus and you jump on his team, the people who don't like Jesus now don't like you. That's how it goes. It's not just like, oh, we don't like the team leader, but we love the team and his followers. No, when you jump on Team Jesus, the people who don't like Jesus don't like his team, and that does create some tension sometimes. And there's a huge portion of our society or people in your workforce or people in your neighborhood who do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, They think the resurrection is the craziest, non-scientific idea that they've ever heard. And you have to understand that when you're a loyal Christian and you speak up for Jesus, inevitably that means you're gonna be out of step with the society at large. It's just the way it goes. And that means that there will come your way, misunderstanding at best, persecution at worst, that people won't always like that. And if you're anything like me, that's a problem for you. Why? Because we want to be liked, don't we? We want people to think good things about us, that we're smart or that we're uh, witty or that we're fun or that we're humorous or whatever. We want people to think highly of us. And we can find ourselves seeking people's approval and wanting them to sign off on everything that we do and everything that we say and avoiding all conflict and and speaking the truth and shifting our walk with Christ into neutral and just never speaking up and swallowing our fear. And I don't say that to guilt trip you because that happens... To everybody, I think. It happens to me. It happened to Paul. Paul's like this, you know, super Christian of a dude when you read about him in scripture. But you find in Acts that when Paul went to Corinth, he was scared out of his mind. And he did not want to speak up. And he didn't want to witness. And he didn't want to tell people about Jesus. And you find that God actually comes to him and says, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. Paul, swallow your fears. Open your mouth. Don't shut your mouth. And for 18 months, Paul evangelizes and tells everyone he comes into contact with about Jesus. And he overcomes that hurdle. He overcomes those fears. So let me encourage you. Be like the blind man, not like his parents. Don't let fear of man rob you of sharing what Jesus is doing in your life. You don't have to know all the answers. He doesn't know a ton about Jesus, but he trusts in Jesus big time. They asked him some questions about Jesus like, I don't know. I just know what he did for me. And he he was not timid to step up and to share that. Odds are the most of you in this room, we said today, hey, in your bulletin, there's this little friend card, right? Write the names of five people down. And most of you probably had two prevailing thoughts. Thought number one, I would love for them and them and them to come. I would love for them to sit with me. I'd love to win pins tickets by winning cornhole, which you won't because I'm going to win them. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm not even going to play. But you'll, I want that. And, And there's probably this excitement that you think of. Like, I would love for that to happen. But there's probably on this end as well, this like, I don't know, like, that may be the 10th time I'm inviting them, or maybe I never have, and I don't know what they're going to say, or I don't know how they're going to respond, and there can be this fear that comes over us that, that I, I, that's that's iffy, I don't know, maybe my boss won't like it if I invite him to church, I don't know if he's a churchgoer, Like all that stuff can enter our head, and if you're not careful, that fear will swallow you up, and you'll never open your mouth for Jesus. So take a lesson in the negative from these parents, and don't kick it back in a neutral not open your mouth. Look at this man and say, you know what, with boldness and with courage, don't be... Don't be an idiot about it, okay? I'm not telling you to be belligerent, I'm not telling you to to be crazy, but invite people in. If you don't, if you don't have the skill set or the knowledge, you don't feel like you know enough to share Jesus, then just say, come and see. Come to church. I'd love for you to hear, I'd love for you to know what, what I found to be true, right? Sometimes you have to swallow that fear of man to be able to just open your mouth and speak boldly about Jesus. Secondly, and maybe most importantly. Swallow your pride and surrender to Jesus. The real thrust of this text is Jesus attempting to unmask reality and show these self-righteous noses in the air, holier-than-thou Pharisees, that they have no sense of need. That they're, they're blinded to the truth. That sin has so camouflaged itself in their life that they don't think that they need to believe, that they think that everything is fine. And they fall into this trap of thinking that heaven is this sort of reward for the righteous instead of just being this gift for the guilty. And they won't admit that they're guilty, that they're blind, that they need Jesus, that they need to come into faith with him. And Jesus is plainly trying to tell them, if you come to me with the need, I gotcha, we'll be fine. But if you don't, and you think that you have it all squared away and your religious pedigree and everything that you've done, and, and you have this laundry list of how good you are and why God should let you into heaven, then I got nothing for you. And that honestly is the message of the Bible over and over and over and over again. Romans says it this way. When we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The Bible portrays us, believers in Jesus, as without strength, helpless, unable to get the job done ourselves, and guilty. You say, "Who, who guilty? I'm, I'm not guilty. You know all the good deeds I've done? You know all the times I prayed, you know all the times I read my Bible, you know all the times I've been to church, you know all the the great things I've done. I'm a great parent, I'm a great husband, I'm a great wife. The Bible says very, very plainly, when it comes to salvation of your soul, you're in dire need. And if you don't see your need, you're toast. That there has to be a prevailing attitude of humility and understanding that I can't do this myself. And I don't don't care what promotions you got at work. I don't care how successful your business is. I don't care how much you can bench press. I don't care if you can outswim Michael Phelps. When it comes to salvation, you can't do it yourself. And if you don't see that, Jesus says, you're coming to me thinking that you see clearly, but you're not, you're blind. There's nothing for you. But if you come understanding I'm blind and that I need something, I'm here and I'll give you sight. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 18. He says, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven you got to have the same relationship to God of dependency and vulnerability as a little child has to their parent. It can't be that you do it on your own. Adrian Rogers paraphrased verses 39, 40, and 41. He paraphrased them in this way. He said, the gospel is for anyone who recognizes their spiritual poverty. If you come swaggering to God as a prince, you'll go away as a beggar. But if you come as a beggar, you'll go away as a prince. Now that, I'll admit that's a painful truth. That's difficult because we have too much pride. I'll admit, it's very difficult to go through that low door of humility and to say, I'm not going to be able to do it myself. I can't solve this myself. I have sin that makes me guilty. I have to come to God. That's, That's very difficult. That's bad news. But the good news makes that bad news worth it. That Jesus dies for that sin, pays for that sin, offers you forgiveness, offers you eternal life, offers you a home in heaven, offers you everything that you want to try to earn on on your own by his free gift. If you will just accept it and receive it and understand that I have nothing to do with this and it's not my works and it's not my righteousness, but it's completely his, that it's there for free. But it's tough for us to take free gifts from people sometimes because our pride kicks in. It's also tough for us because consciously or subconsciously, we understand that if it's true, that all forgiveness and all salvation in, in heaven is, has nothing to do with my merit, but has everything to do with Jesus' merit, and I accept that gift, naturally, where does that put us? Back on our heels saying, what could he ask of me that's too big, right? Right? If it's true that he gives me everything and he does it for free and he died for that and he paid the price for all of that, all of a sudden we find ourselves in a position where saying, Lord, now should be easy, right? Because he's done it all and it was all a gift and now we get this sense of kind of, I owe him a little bit. And many people know that would be the case and say, I don't want that. I'll rather put my two cents in and I'll I'll rather do my part so that when Jesus asks me something, we can negotiate a little bit. That's not how it works. And he tries to make it very, very plain to these people. You have to see your sense of need. You got to swallow your pride and you got to call out to me and you got to understand I'm blind. I'm a beggar. Jesus, I need you. I got nothing to offer. I'm empty handed. Save me. Not because of me, because of you. The old hymn written in 1891, actually a Norwegian melody, says, my faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. And that's the truth of the gospel. That's the good news. But if you understand you're a sinful soul coming to him, he'll never cast you out. The, The song ends by saying, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And the question of John 9 really is, are you there? Have you been or are you currently at a spot where you see and sense your spiritual need and understand that you can't do it yourself and that only Jesus can do it for you? Because if you're not, you said you're actually blind. You think you see, but you're blind. The reality is that many of you have been there and you put your faith in Jesus and you know what that's like kind of the painful process, the the humbling process. Some of you, like this blind man, your faith has kind of budded and now it's starting to bloom and today you need to do that. You need to swallow your pride and say, Jesus, I believe your Lord and worship him.